Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who is striving to play advanced level works one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little bit more informed and appreciative of classical music. This is episode 17.3, the third episode in a series where we are discussing a couple of the most famous piano works by classical composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Along with Beethoven and Haydn, Mozart was one of the three main composers of the classical era, and all three of these composers are credited with bringing the piano sonata to popularity. We've spent the last two weeks exploring a sonata by Mozart, and sometime during season two of the podcast, we'll spend some time with sonatas by Haydn and Beethoven as well, which will complete our classical triumvirate. But we're not even done with Mozart yet. His sonata number 16 still has one movement that we haven't heard yet, so we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, let's check back in on Mozart in his new home of Vienna. Things were going well for Mozart after leaving his hometown of Salzburg. His talent was finally being appreciated, with his growing reputation as the finest keyboard player in Vienna. In 1782, he also completed the opera The Abduction of Seraglio, which was a huge hit throughout German-speaking Europe. So now he was not only known as a skilled performer, but a notable composer as well. When Mozart first made his big move to Vienna, he lived with the Weber family. The patriarch of the Webers had recently passed, and they were taking in renters to make ends meet. Mozart became interested in the Webers' 19-year-old daughter Constance, and he began to court her. She was highly educated, trilingual, and musically trained which was seemingly a perfect match for a young, successful composer. But once Mrs. Weber found out about this courtship, which was blossoming under her own roof, she politely demanded that Mozart move out of their home. Mozart and Constance continued to see each other, but theirs was not a storybook romance. It was a more realistic roller coaster fueled by emotional ups and downs. For instance, here's some classical Viennese tea for you. Mozart became insanely jealous after a young man measured Constance's calf during a parlor game. So the couple briefly broke up during April of 1782, but they ended up reconciling later that year. Amidst these bouts of jealousy, their relationship suffered another hurdle. Mozart's father did not approve of it. It's difficult to pin down why exactly. Perhaps it's because he was still bitter that Mozart moved away from home, and figured if Mozart married a woman in Vienna, then there was no hope of him ever returning to Salzburg. Mozart spent many letters trying to convince his father that Constance was the one. Here's an excerpt. I must make you better acquainted with the character of my dear Constance. Her whole beauty consists of two little black eyes and a pretty figure, 
She likes to be neatly and cleanly dressed, but not smartly. And most things that a woman needs, she is able to make for herself. And she dresses her hair every day. I love her and she loves me with all her heart. Tell me whether I could wish for a better wife. A lady with beady eyes who washes her hair and wears clean clothes? Mozart's dream woman. Without his father's blessing, Mozart married Constance in the summer of 1782 at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. The day after the wedding, Mozart received his father's consent in the mail. The happy couple had six children, but only two survived infancy. Two boys, Carl and Franz. Two out of six doesn't seem like very good odds, but it's a sign of the times, I suppose. We should be thankful for modern medicine. Constance was not only Mozart's wife, but his muse. She herself was a trained vocalist and favored Baroque counterpoint, which is reflected in Mozart's work during this time, namely for the fugue-like passages in his famous opera, The Magic Flute. Mozart took his new bride home to Salzburg, where she was met with cordial, warm reception by his father and sister. Mozart wrote one of his most famous liturgical works, Mass in C Minor, during this time at home. And it was premiered in Salzburg with Constance singing the solo part. mentioned before that the classical music period revolved around three pillars, Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven. Well, two of these pillars are about to converge. Mozart met Joseph Haydn in Vienna in 1784, and the two became fast friends, performing publicly together and dedicating works to each other. Mozart's father Leopold recounted in a letter that Haydn had told him, I tell you before God, and as an honest man, your son is the greatest composer known to me by person and repute. He has taste and what is more, the greatest skill in composition. In 1787, a young Beethoven also spent a few weeks in Vienna, but we have no record if Beethoven ever met Mozart or Haydn, or if this classical composer triumvirate ever shared the same room. Imagine if Elvis, Mick Jagger, and Paul McCartney got together to record an album. The star power and egos might have been too contentious. Maybe some things are best left to the imagination. Mozart experienced a great period of financial success during this time. He performed many solo concerts, debuting three to four new piano concertos each season. These concerts were extremely popular and helped cement into history the classical style that Mozart ended up defining. Mozart and Constance indulged in this newfound success and started to one-up their lifestyle. They rented a new fancy apartment for 460 florins a year. You might remember last episode that this was Mozart's entire salary back in Salzburg. 
Mozart also bought a brand new piano for 900 florins. And then the Mozarts bought a luxurious pool table to decorate their new home at 300 florins. They didn't just stop at material purchases either and started throwing money around to elevate their social status. They hired household servants and started sending their son Carl to an expensive boarding school. With all of these new expenses, Mozart wasn't saving a dime. Things were certainly looking up for Mozart. He was experiencing personal successes with his new wife and two young sons, as well as a plethora of professional successes, bringing in a steady flow of money. This was the high of Mozart's short life. We'll find out next week how he fares in his later years. But let's finish up this sonata in C major. We've heard movement one, which was the big hit, a delightful sonata form movement in C major. Then we listen to movement number two, which was a more emotional and tender rondo in G major. The third track could be classified as the dance number. It's also a rondo, but livelier than the second movement. And it makes a return to the tonic key of C major. C major, the key of innocent happiness. Completely pure, simple, and naive, the key of children, free of burden, full of imagination, powerful resolve, and earnestness. The key of C major is a perfect fit to this movement. To steal a phrase from that description, the key of children is especially fitting. This movement has a childlike, innocent quality that reminds me of a game of schoolyard tag. This rondo shares the same exact form as the rondo from the second movement. You may recall from last week that a rondo can take a variety of forms, but the distinguishing factor is that the A section always returns. This movement takes on the same A-B-A-C-A form that we saw last week, so this should be familiar territory by now. Let's start with the A section, the most important thematic material of the movement. As we've learned to expect, the A section in the rondo will always be presented in the tonic key, and in this case, we're in C major. Then the piece is lifted to the dominant for the B section. Starting at C major, the dominant or the fifth would take us to C, D, E, F, G major. So let's appreciate that jump to the dominant. Here's the A section and the tonic of C major versus the B section and the dominant of G major. The B section runs right out of the gate with racing 16th notes in both hands, bringing new energetic heights to this sonata. Then, following the rondo form, we revert back to the tonic key with the repeat of the A theme in C major. 
Now, the C section makes the same move as the second movement and takes a turn to the minor. Instead of switching gears to the tonic C minor, though, it switches to the relative minor of C major, which is a half step plus a whole step down to A minor. While the technical peaks of this sonata are not very high, this section would arguably be one of them. Rounding out the rondo form of A-B-A-C-A -A -A is a third iteration of the A theme, switching things back once again to the key of C major. But we can't end there. Since this is the big finale of the sonata, Mozart includes a coda, which feeds off of the forward momentum of the movement and explodes into a reiteration of the material that we heard in the C section. But this time, we hear it in a major key. Ending the sonata on a high, in the tonic key where we started this journey, so we all feel a sense of finality and home. Here is the third and final movement of Mozart's 16th Sonata in C major, also known as the Facile Sonata. While that completes our talk on Mozart's most well-known piano sonata, I didn't want to leave Mozartland until we tackle one more of his most famous pieces. Next week, we're going to single out the third movement of his 11th piano sonata, which is more famously referred to as Rondo alla Turca.
You can find the standalone recording of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all of the tracks heard on this podcast and more. Find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating or reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thanks as always for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.